to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Martin Chipper Willis. Hey, I'm Chipper, and Happy New Year, everyone. Yep, you're, you're Chipper fella. So uh, we have, uh, well, I guess I first, maybe I should apologize. I didn't have a show last week, and I kind of told people I would, but it just got too hectic the holidays. I did some traveling oh. during the holidays, and um, I think everybody understands how the holidays can get a little loco, but, um, and I would have had to have tried to arrange something in Colorado. In fact, you were up for it and, uh, we just couldn't make it happen because I was all over yeah. the place. I know. And it was like, well, I can this time, you can that time. And we just couldn't quite yeah. get it together. And I actually brought some equipment to Colorado so I could, you know, record a show, but it just didn't work out. I apologize people, yeah. but we got a show. Good, good, good show today and some great shows on the way. Uh, today is the show that I, I have been hyping up for quite a while, which is my interview with Paul Hynek, the son of the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was an astronomer and uh, he helped the Air Force investigate UFOs, uh, kind of as a debunker at first and then eventually as pretty much one of the first civilian, you know, scientific UFO investigators. Uh, he created the whole Close Encounters uh, scale, and then he uh, he helped with the movie Close Encounters with Spielberg. In fact, I've got a cute video with our friend Lee Spiegel talking about his encounter with Spielberg and Dr. Hynek uh, together at once. So that's, that's a really cool video on our Open Minds YouTube. Uh, if you want to look that up, it's regarding also the UN, United Nations event that Lee uh, helped uh, orchestrate. So in that... Uh, um, Spielberg helped them with. So that's what that's about, or at least offered to help and did did help a bit. And that's what Lee's talking about in that video. But um, he's also the, and we'll talk more about this, Martin and I, the, the person uh, featured kind of the centerpiece of this new television show that's essentially about him. It's called Project Blue Book, but it's about, you know, Hynek working with the Air Force to investigate UFOs. It's a History Channel series that starts in about a week. However, because Martin and I are so cool, we've had some sneak peeks <clears throat> into the show. And, of course, we've been interviewing some of the people who have been creating the show. And uh, Paul Hynek has been involved with uh, a bit with consultation and things like that. So uh, I was extremely excited to meet uh, Paul Hynek actually at the Alien Con in uh, Baltimore, and I was able to arrange an interview, which you'll be hearing momentarily. I have to tell you, uh, it's really hard for me to say this, but I'm really jealous. Oh, yeah? yeah. Why is that hard to say? I admit it when I'm jealous of you. <laughs> I know. That's which because often you're happens. Kind of, yeah. No, no, I am. I'm. I'm really looking forward to listening to this. It's, that's really exciting to be actually 
able to talk to, I mean, this guy lived it, you know, it was yeah. in his household and uh, that must be just amazing. Can't wait to listen. It was amazing what the most, the, one of the biggest drills, which we'll talk about is that he heard one of my talks in Baltimore, at least uh, the majority of it, where the good portion of it was uh, about Hynek, because I was talking about Spielberg and his UFO interest, which started with Hynek. And I even mentioned, you know, because I brought up the History Channel show, because the History Channel, of course, uh, has Ancient Aliens, which is the alien con is, is centered around the Ancient Aliens show. Um, by the way, I'll be speaking in, in June at their next alien con as well. And this one's going to be in L.A. But uh, so that was a big deal. And I was telling people, by the way, you know, Heineck, he's he's really important. He's the guy that you see, you know. Uh, being portrayed by the character that on these posters that are plastered all over the place. Hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so I talked a lot about Heineck, and I do try to include Heineck in as many lectures I do as possible, because for me, it's really important to educate the public, because I think he's such an important figure, which is one reason I'm genuinely very excited about this new show. And uh, you know what? I, and I would like to hear how you feel about this. As a journalist, and I know even with Den of Geek, there's there's a little bit of a gray line. And I certainly writing for the Huffington Post, I, I had this issue where you you need to be careful. You need to be unbiased, and you need to be taking a um, a perspective. You know that is uh, critical um, when that's fair. Which I always try to do, and I think, you know, when we've talked about the show a, a bit, I, I've gone there, and maybe we will when we talk about it for a minute, in, in a minute. But some of these shows, like the Mars program, uh, or some of these other uh, National Geographic shows, or some of these History Channel shows like this one, I just get so excited about them. And I really think that they're good and they're providing a service that I can't help but be very enthusiastic and be completely on board as a cheerleader for these shows. And uh, this is one of those. I'm just so excited for this show. I couldn't be more excited. Um, and like you mentioned, I, I guess if it's OK, I'll kind of roll into my news segment. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Let's not, do UFO uh, news, which is kind of transitioning or a good segue. Yeah, uh, it's not really leaving this topic, actually. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk today about actually about the show, which we are talking about. Um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we were both fortunate enough to get screeners, and um, I, I got an opportunity and feel very fortunate to actually have watched the first six um, shows in the series. And I'm telling you, I am I'm head over heels in love with the show. I absolutely really? love it. And I think that if anyone has an interest in Project Blue Book, uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek, or UFOs, any of those, um, this is really going to be a show you're not going to want to miss. It's exceptional. Mm -hmm. really so what about it. this, though? Uh, there are There's a lot of inaccuracies in it, in that yes. um, there's some setups that are also, you know, like he's entering uh, from, and I don't think this is a spoiler, I'll say spoiler, but it's not really, I mean, you'll see this at the beginning of the show, and uh, one detail is Heineck is being hired on in 1952 at the beginning of Project Blue Book, when in actuality he started back in 1948. Yeah, um, you know, if you want to 
and I totally get that. And I did listen to your your show with David O'Leary, which I thought you asked some really good, great questions. And, um, you know, I understand um, that there are some inaccuracies. And I do believe, as I think he mentioned, that, uh, okay, you know, they're talking about this case. Now it's up it's up to you, you know, if you're really interested in these cases to, to check them out and do your own research. Um, there are some definite embellishments and uh, exaggerations. But, um, you know, I mean, this is uh, theatrical and it has to, uh, you know, I had someone I spoke to the other day said, isn't the, aren't these experiences an, enough? Why do they need to embellish them at all? And, you know, that is kind of a, a question, but um, I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to actually pick up a show and run it where they're not going to try to make it, you know, have a little bit of an entertainment value, you know, especially if they want to continue more than one season, unfortunately it has to do with ratings. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, I understand the inaccuracies and some of them have bugged me in some of the shows I watched a bit. Um, because I thought, oh God, that's that's just going over the top, um, but it's not it's not an extreme. I mean, there's just a couple of things that I thought they didn't really need to do that or this, but um, but I'm really really enjoying it overall. I think uh, you know uh, the characters right away. You connect to the characters. Um, Aiden Gillian uh, from Game of Thrones plays uh, J uh, J Allen Hynek. I uh, think he's very uh, he's He's very quirky, just the way I understand Heineck was. And by the way, uh, myself, I, I don't know how you perceived Heineck, but when I first started really getting into the UFO topic, I was, you know, watching videos with Heineck in it, and I thought, this guy's really, this is really unusual. This guy is so against UFOs, you know, debunking them constantly, and then he changes, and I, I didn't, I couldn't quite make the connection how that all happened it took me a while to figure that out um you know and basically you know for the people that are new listening to the show whatever are not familiar with him um he basically just keeps looking at the topic and these cases and realizes there's really something to this and you know over over the years you know some people say it was a socorro case i'm not sure if that's true or not it kind of made him just kind of go over to the other side, so to speak. And uh, and I'm sure he was very welcomed by uh, the people in the UFO field when that, uh, when that happened. Do you know in detail how dramatic of a change that was for him to— Oh, his perspective? I know, and we talk about this uh, with, with Heineck, uh, Paul Heineck a bit um, here— but yeah, I mean, it's a pretty major perspective change, and I make that point. In fact, they haven't printed it yet. It should be, yeah. It. I have a Den of Geek article that'll probably be coming out this week on, um, kind of a preview of the show, uh, and, you know, and I've got another one actually on Den of Geek right now that talks about Heineck and and the man behind the show, and it was a major change. That's not portrayed in the show at all. Um, but, you know, like we talked about, it's it's not kind of a biopic. It's about Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. And and you always have to think of, uh, and maybe it's from interviewing writers, and I think it's a helpful to look at it from this perspective, is that you've got um, something that you're trying to portray. 
uh, in this case, Project Blue Book. So you've got to get a sense of how people felt about it, um, a sense of what they did, and then portray kind of the sense of all of that as as opposed to definitely all the facts and the figures point by point, because you've got such a limited amount of time, you know, uh, to portray that. And right. so, yeah. uh, you know, that that's one thing. This isn't a biopic about Heineck. This is about Project Blue Book. So they do, I think, uh, get a sense of, you know, the Air Force uh, at least, you know, not wanting this to be such a big deal and then bringing in Heineck to kind of debunk things, which is what he got frustrated with. But he was all on board to debunk. And I have this great quote that I... Um, I use in my article, I guess I could pull up that article real quick, but essentially he was saying that their assumption was that this whole thing was nonsense. So whenever we looked at it, we were just trying to explain how this case was nonsense. And he said he was embarrassed because at the beginning, that's exactly what he did, not because he was trying to debunk or or hide something. Uh, it was just because he felt it was absolute nonsense. So when you go into it with an assumption, oh, this is, you know, nothing, then you're just looking for, okay, let's break apart this nothing and show how people how this is nothing. And it just became harder for him to do that to where, you know, he's looking at these cases and he's like us. When we see a UFO video, um, we're not the type or, or many of the people we bring on, on and our friends are not the type to say, oh, that's got to be alien immediately. We want to break it down and dissect it, you know, and, and it's minutia before we go there. And he was mm-hmm. like that. And what he found was when he breaks everything down in some of these cases, so much is unexplained and that these very credible and capable witnesses are explaining something that uh, does not fit something ordinary. So he he, he mentioned uh, that his frustration was mostly that he was not allowed to thoroughly investigate many of these cases because he felt many deserved it and he couldn't figure out the mystery behind them. So there was a genuine mystery to UFOs. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't jump to the conclusions of what they might be, he actually frustrated a lot of UFO researchers because he said, hey, we don't know. We can't jump to the ET conclusion because we don't have enough information to say that. So yeah, it was a pretty, it's a pretty drastic change that he made, but he's not, what's interesting is, you know, Elizondo kind of is similar. Um, certainly Nick Pope was very similar. So a lot of people who have gotten, have kind of been thrust into this arena, um, begrudgingly to look at this topic, uh, have walked away, um, you know, having a perspective they never thought they would, that, wow, there is a genuine mystery to all of this. And many of the big-time scientists, uh, like, let's say, a show stack who we've talked about, who works for, for SETI, um, have not done that work to come to, to mm-hmm. really... Once they do the work and then they... I think they have a more valid stance when they come across out saying, you know, I think we were able to explain things away. But um, that's just, uh, you know, they haven't done the work for the most part. Um, And more open-minded scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Michio Kaku are more open to the possibility that there's a genuine mystery. Or this, uh, what, Columbo guy who wrote this paper uh, for the SETI uh, Institute recently, and that was big in the news, um, you know, open Mm -hmm. to the idea. So... Yeah, it was a pretty big change that he had. What else I like about the show is that uh, Heineck comes across in the show 
as a very intelligent and careful person who is seriously analyzing these cases. And he's very, very likable as well. He's not egotistical or anything. He's Mm -hmm. just, he's a likable guy, even though he's got uh, uh, his career that he's, you know, uh, which is a major motivation for him um, in the show. He comes across as very likable, fun to watch. Yes, and uh, uh, and then his his sidekick, you know, the captain there, uh, portrayed by Michael Malarkey. Um, it, you know, he he is uh, you know constantly like ah, it's nothing, it's nothing. Even when something major <laughs> happens, yeah. But you can see uh, they do portray that uh, Heineck's frustration and not getting enough uh, information. And uh, you know, again, I don't I don't want to spoil anyone you know from saying too much uh, of the shows that i watched but um you know with the top brass so to speak um he seems frustrated too and they're a little you know they're portrayed as being a little concerned about him being um you know a little over eager to uh, solve the mystery mm-hmm. and basically it kind of just says from right from the beginning you know they want to basically be able to come up with a quick story and a quick answer mm-hmm. and and they, um, you know, the first show, I don't think it'll bother anyone if I say what the first six ep- episodes are. Um, and the first one is basically the Fuller dog fight. Um, the second one is the Flatwoods monster, which I, I thought was pretty well done. I'm excited uh, to watch those. I've only watched the, the first part, the first one you talked about. I haven't watched the rest yet. And, and uh, then I'm, there's uh, the, the Lubach lights. Um, is it Lubbock? Well- I've always heard Lubbock. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> that's right. Right. Thank you. The Lubbock lights, and that's uh, that's done uh, very well. And these shows have amazing special effects in them. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm not I kind of geeky when it comes to because I'm a I'm a you know fine arts appraiser and antique appraiser, and so um, I'm looking constantly at the vintage props that they have and uh i haven't and i'm i'm really i'm i'm really pathetic to watch a movie with you know because uh, <laughs> i really watch uh, everything and i'll say oh that chair wasn't made till 1864 in this movie <laughs> it was supposed to portray 1850 you know yeah stuff like that that's funny uh so i'm watching everything in in this uh, show uh right down to the clothing and every single knickknack and the houses and everything like that and it's definitely in the 50s and 60s and very well done. Uh, every every attention to detail oh, wow. is, is really great. That's good to hear. And I should say the other cool thing is, you know, if you're uh, disappointed in the accuracy, like some hardcore UFO researchers are, uh, History Channel's done something that I haven't seen any other network oh, yeah. do by providing on the Blue Book webpage, which, of course, we've talked about every time one comes out, these excellent articles that are fact-based. Um, they're written by journalists. Right. In fact, I've talked to a couple. Uh, they've been fortunate enough to call me and um, uh, quoted in a couple of these. And these are actual, and I've ta- asked them a bit. They're all journalists who are, you know, mostly not necessarily educated on these topics, which I think is a good thing, and then doing the research to find out uh, more about them and write in an unbiased perspective uh, about these cases. And they're great, great cases. So you get a lot of great facts. Um, 
So you can find that on the website, which is really cool. So yeah, in fact, we talk to Heineck about all of this stuff as well. But yeah, I I think it's going to be great for people actually educating themselves and, and many, many more people being educated on the facts about right. Dr. And- J. Allen Heineck and Project Blue Book. That's right. And just to just to go on, because I said I'd name the first six um, oh. shows. Yeah, uh, the one following the Lubbock Lights is uh, Operation Paperclip. Um, mm. That's that's pretty well done. But uh, that's the one where I mentioned that I thought um, things went a little bit far out on that one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, Foo Fighters is next, and the Green Fireballs um, is up after that. So that's the mm. first six shows, and. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm totally addicted. I'm I'm probably going to watch them again just because I have that opportunity and uh, and I I can't wait for the following one to come out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll try to get into other news here, uh, but I do want to say I also have on the Open Minds TV uh, YouTube page I posted audio from my interview with Michael Malarkey. So I got an interview with this guy. Uh, lots oh. of the kids this that I talked to, like my niece, were really excited about that because he's in the show Vampire v- Diaries, That's and right. he's yeah. a very attractive young man, and and all the yeah. lots of ladies really like him. But uh, that's where he's really well known. But great guy, really cool guy. So I sat in on a, a longer interview with a few other journalists, and and I'll be writing something up on that for Den of Geek. But uh, uh, they was did that let the one me that post was a call. Yes, a, a call you could join. Ah, oh, jeez, yeah. I didn't join that. So yeah. and then I uh, did was able to post the audio for my questions, and I got a few in there, of course, about UFOs. And what was fun is he listened to my podcast, my interview with David O'Leary. Um, so he was, he, that's the first thing he said. Um, but which just shows he's also into UFOs and stuff. And so it was a great interview. So you guys can check that out on YouTube. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. I was really sorry. I missed that. Um, there's something else I'd like to mention if we have Mm -hmm. time here. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So, uh, this is in the, uh, the KRQE, uh, website in, uh, Albuquerque metro area. And it's about our good friend, David Marler. Mm-hmm. And the title of this is UFO Researcher Pledges to Donate Entire UFO Collection to UNM. And uh, so it's made some news. And so it just goes on to say about him amassing the collection. Uh, David Marler, of course, uh, lives in Rio Rancho. And um, he has uh, tens of thousands of pieces that he's going to be uh, now, this uh, donating a, to the university, and that's upon his uh, passing. And this will be, of course, for a perpetual usage for anyone researching UFOs, which actually he is open to letting people do research there in his library at his house. I don't know. Have you ever been to his place? I have not. You know, there's pictures in, uh, and I've gotten lots of pictures. He'll send them to me. Or like sometimes yeah. when people visit, like when Lee visited him uh Fairly recently, Lee sent me some pictures, too, because everybody's so floored by this incredible collection that he has. But, yeah, I think he's already got the agreement with the uh, University of New Mexico that, you know, That's the, right. yeah. it'll all go there to them, which is so awesome. I mean, he's a great guy. So I always tell people, because sometimes people will come to me, you know, where should I give uh, these my archives? Sometimes they even say, I want right. to give my archives to open minds. And I tell them, 
give them to David because uh, he's already got the facility. He's already got everything. Uh, sometimes I'll ask, let me look him over first. But uh, yeah, cause mm-hmm. I think he's the best place for that in the United States because he's going to ma- ensure that they're open to the public. And he also has uh, some Project Blue Book files as well in that lot. Um, right. That were found on Craigslist. He essentially found a locker, right? Or somebody else did. Yeah, basically, uh, it was that he tracked down uh, uh, an original Project Blue Book. Um, uh, I can't remember his, you know, status in in the Air Force, but he tracked him down and he got the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was uh, belonging. I, this was left over in a house that um, the gentleman had moved out of. And uh, so, yeah, some really great stuff in the, in that lot in particular. And uh, he also has something from a, a dumpster diver <laughs> that was found with, signed by President uh, Johnson. So Interesting cool. stuff. Yep. Uh, we're out of time, aren't we? We are out of time. So we got to go. Uh, thank you so much, Martin. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll have a short break and we'll be right back with Paul Hynek. I'm extremely excited to welcome to the show Paul Hynek. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, Alejandro. Thank you. So I guess my first question is, well, you saw at least some of my talk in Baltimore, so you know how enthusiastic I am about sharing information about uh, your father. And so... uh, so you could probably understand why I'm so excited about the show, but I'm curious, how did you feel when you first heard or they first approached you that they were doing this? Oh, um, and let me say, I'm enthusiastic about you being enthusiastic about my father. <laughs> um, so uh, I first heard about it through my brother Joel's attorney, who has a relationship with history and A&E. And, and they asked if Joel and I would serve as consultants on the show. And um, so we had a discussion with our family and, you know, we're Joel and I both work in entertainment and we understand that in our role as consultants, we don't, you know, we don't control what happens, um, but that we had a chance to influence the show and to provide more sort of accurate information about both my, my father and my mother and some of the experiences they had. And so we decided um, very enthusiastically to get involved, and it's been a really wonderful experience. Um, we feel that the show is a really fun experience, and it, let's say it bends the truth quite a lot, and it adds a lot of interesting suspense and things that may or may not have happened, but it it's presents both my parents in, a, in an authentic light with their characters being true to what the superb actors found to be the sort of core of the characters. And so my, one of my father's goals was to have people be open-minded about UFOs, both about the phenomena and then also open-minded about possible explanations. And so I think he'd feel that this show is a really good effort to get people to think seriously about the phenomena. So, um, yeah, so we're both very happy to be involved and have found everybody to be very respectful of my father and his legacy. That's really exciting. And having 
you know, been involved with entertainment, you know that it's a huge leap of faith to trust a production company with something like this because you never know yeah. what you're going to get. And at least in my experience, unfortunately, the majority, uh, 70% of the time, it's kind of a disappointment. Yeah. You know, um, so the prior go around we had with this was the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? which was based on my father's classification system, which you know very well. Um, and my father was a bit hesitant about it because that was Hollywood coming and Hollywood and science don't often don't always make for very good bed partners. Um, but he was, he was very pleased with how it turned out um, that it showed a sort of sympathetic understanding of a very complex phenomena. And, you know, this show is different. Um, Close Encounters was a, a pure piece of fiction. This show is an interesting idea where you have real characters and then some also some characters that are based loosely on other real characters. And then it just sort of stretches the truth and says, what happens if you have these characters who we have a good bead on and we put them in circumstances that are more exaggerated? So it's a very interesting idea. And we talked a lot about, well, how do we feel about having our dad especially be involved with cases and, and have things happen that, that didn't really happen. But as long as he is responding and acting in a way that's true to um, his character, we didn't have a problem with it. And we think it's a very interesting way to, to get people to engage with this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Right. Now I, I saw a preview of the first couple of episodes and like you said, I mean, close encounters was fiction, but it portrayed this kind of real situation, this real uh, phenomena uh, and investigations being done in a very accurate way. Uh, so it was still right. enlightening and educational. And so you've kind of got to have that if you're trying to, uh, even if you're trying to be as factual as possible. That's right. And, and each of the episodes for Project Blue Book are based on real cases. Mm -hmm. um, and both the creator of the show, David O'Leary, and the showrunner, Sean Jablonski, are, are big UFO buffs. Um, and David O'Leary especially, he is, he's been a, a follower of the phenomena for many years and has an encyclopedic recall, almost like a baseball announcer does, <laughs> of, of UFO cases and timelines and and people involved in the phenomena. So there really is a, um, a real basis for many of the things that happen. And then they, you know, they just jazz it up with more drama to make it fun. Mm hmm. Now, it's funny because I interviewed, uh, Mr. O'Leary. In fact, he was the last, uh, show episode of the show and we really hit it off because uh, there were similar to, he, he just, like you said, he's a UFO geek. I mean, he gets so oh, yeah. excited about the topic and was he, did you get to meet him before you decided to participate? Yes. Um, we had a meeting with, with him and Sean, the showrunner um, in Century City, when they, after they'd made the initial overture and we were talking with them. And one of the things that was interesting was we had told them that we'd been working on a, a script. And actually my brother Joel's daughter, Lauren, and her partner, Elizabeth Martin, had written a spec script for a feature film about my father's wow. sort of journey through the UFO cosmos. And one of the ideas that, that I came up with for that was what we call Heineck vision, where kind of like in the beautiful mind and some other movies you've seen where these people have the ability to make a mental overlay. Now we would call it augmented reality 
overlay over a scene. So, for example, um, my dad would be out on the, in the field in Socorro, New Mexico, or, or where have you, and as he's hearing a report, he then sort of conjures up this augmented reality overlay of, okay, well, the moon would have been here at the time. If there's a weather balloon, it would have been about that altitude, oh. and sort of corroborating with the ongoing testimony from the or the report from the witness. And so I mentioned that to David and the other folks, and David and Sean just smiled and looked at each other and said, we had the exact same idea. And so that kind of started off the meeting on a really good foot that we had, we both thought through things in a very similar way. And we, my brother Joel and I immediately saw just the, like I said, the respect I had for my father and the, the genuine interest in this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That is a fun part of the show, and it's cool that you say that because, you know, it, it's somewhat similar to uh, the UK television show Sherlock, and who, of course, was extremely yeah, intelligent. Right. But you get that feel with the show, and it's kind of what David O'Leary said he was going for, is he wanted Heineck to be, like, uh, the smartest guy in the room. And in the show, it's kind of like he's the only guy who's who's – actually trying to figure out what's going on here using his, you know, uh, extreme intelligence. And the character that Aiden Gillen plays is also very likable. And so I love the character to death. I think that people are really going to resonate with this character. Oh, cool. And, you know, you mentioned Aiden Gillen. He is he's an amazing actor. And um, we've had a lot of communications. Um, and he'll send my brother Joel and I an email saying, how would your dad have pronounced Haley's comment? Um, and so <laughs> we, we really talked a lot and gave him a lot of pictures and anecdotes because both he and Laura Minnell, a superb actress who plays my mom, really, I think, went to great lengths to try to get what they felt was the authentic core of the character. Um, and, the, and the goal was not to make everything accurate, but to make it authentic. And that's what you can do in fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, your father actually had an iconic look, too, that Aiden really has nailed, but he chose yeah. not to go with the pipe. I was wondering why that, do you know why that decision was made? You know, I'm not sure. And we talked about that quite a lot. Um, and we mentioned that, you know, my dad was a fidgeter and he, sometimes he'd have a pipe. Sometimes he'd have a little, a uh, little rock in his hand, sometimes even a little box turtle. Um, he was an eternal fidgeter. So I, I'm not sure why perhaps the pipe will come along down the road. Um, but you know, there's, there's one point when I went to visit, uh, the set and, uh, on this day, there was an outdoor scene with a car chase and as, and, and so Aiden drove in the car, they stopped the scene. He comes walking over and we chatted for a bit. And as he's walking away, when I'm looking at him, as he's walking away, it just felt like my dad was there. Wow. Um, the, the sort of silhouette he cast. Mm hmm. That is really cool. Now. Now, the character is also, uh, which is really cool, very patient and, uh, of course, thoughtful and careful when he's choosing his words. And, of course, I've seen many interviews of your father, and that also seems very accurate. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as a child, you can, you can sort of um, tease out a less patient side in a parent. So I've right. seen, uh, many different kinds. But yeah, my father was, you know, he was a very, I, I, I'd say he was patient. He was tolerant, jovial, understanding, and just a very sweet, good-natured man. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, 
never really felt that he worked because from the age of about seven, he decided he wanted to be an astronomer. So he was following his bliss his whole life and in various incarnations. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, during the early years, and we'll get more into the UFO research that he did and what that was like, but uh, a friend of mine, Lee Spiegel, actually met you when you were a kid. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you remember? He, was, he would have been a young guy that kind of looked like Serpico. <laughs> yes, I remember Lee. You do remember him. He, he wanted yes. me to ask you, yeah. so uh, I just remember, yeah. and I figured I'll just do it on air. Yes, I do. And if you see him, tell him I say hi. Oh, I will. He's going to be so thrilled. I'm going to call him right after the show and let him know, and he's going to be super thrilled. Um, cool. So th the show portrays you and your brother as children at, while he gets started in this. Now, I've only seen the c first couple of episodes, so I'm not sure like at what sort of emotional toll or if they'll even get into the emotional tolls that it took on him in the show. But did it? I mean, how did? how was your... Did your father bring his work home, at least related to the UFO stuff? Did you know how he felt about getting involved with it to, in the beginning and, and his feelings as they evolved? That's a really good question. So I can answer from a couple different points of view. Part One of them is my dad was born in 1910, and he wouldn't I, – I think it may be sort of a hallmark of people born then – but he wouldn't immediately start telling you about the stresses he had in that particular day or just about his childhood. He, he, you know, people from back then, they were born around then. I, what I've noticed is, especially like also people who were heroic in World War II, et cetera, they just didn't often just start a conversation about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so my dad was, was like that. And so it would really be up to us to sort of ask him questions and ferret things out. And I learned so many things by asking him about his childhood, et cetera, that I found fascinating. Um, as for how he got into the program in the beginning, that was a little bit before my time. And in talking with my family members and my mom about it, you know, Project Blue Book became a very significant endeavor and, and a large part of his life. But when he was asked by the Air Force initially to get in like the late 40s to get involved and help them you know, do research and, and debunk you know, flying saucers, I don't think he understood at the time or he expected at the time that it would become a 20-year pursuit and, and really influence the, the rest of the course of his life. Mm -hmm. It was just he, he had worked with the military during World War II on the proximity fuse he had security clearance. He was a patriotic American, and the Air Force comes calling and says, will you help us? I'm not sure he thought it was more than a, a few weekends of work at the time. <laughs> and it turned out to be a lot more. It sure did. A lot of weekends. And, um, you know, as he got more and more involved, I think, you know, he became first intellectually curious that the data wasn't really comporting to his initial hypothesis that it was a bunch of post-war bunkum. Um, and at the same time, he realized that his road was diverging from the Air Force's. Um, you know, recently, my brother Joel and I had the, the great pleasure of meeting Lieutenant Colonel Robert Friend, mm -hmm. who was one of the directors of Project Blue Book. And of, of all the directors, he's the one that my father admired and respected the most. Mm -hmm. 
And it was fascinating to talk to him about how he saw the phenomenon. Because one of the things he said was that the first thing they needed to do was determine if something was legitimate or a hoax. If they felt it could be legitimate, then Lieutenant Colonel Friend's next task was, does it pose a risk to national security? Which is what you want someone in that position to do. That was mm-hmm. not how my father or other scientists in that position would think. They would, have, of course, start off on the same first step. Is this legitimate? But then try to prove it, replicate it, understand it, things like that, as opposed to thinking about a, a risk to a particular nation state. And so as he's going along, and there were four different directors of Project Blue Book, and, and Ruppelt was another very good one, but... They, the Air Force and my father were looking to do very different things. And so after he got involved, clearly it didn't take very long for him to realize that their goals were, were not quite aligned. Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. And I think that's important for people to understand. For instance, this gentleman who works with the Pentagon, uh, who just came out about their UFO program, or Nick Pope, this gentleman who worked for the UK. Uh, hopefully you got to meet him in Baltimore great guy. But they make that point. When we worked for the government, we were looking at whether these were threats or not. We were working for the Defense Department, which is much different than figuring out or even necessarily having a strong uh, motivation to figure out the ins and out of what the heck this thing is. That's right. Um... Now, did, at least from your perspective, what's was there a lot of angst? I mean, was he get, did he ever like, did it, it doesn't seem as though he really got stressed out. It seems like he was able to take things in stride and be very professional. Uh, even though this topic can be controversial and for other scientists can cause some strife in their professional life. It seemed as though he just kind of trudged along and, uh, did his work and it, it, it didn't, he never indicated to have any real emotional, uh, issues that arose uh, well and uh i just want to make a quick point to something you just said about about the threat and obviously oh, the the most recent pentagon initiative that was disclosed recently was the advanced aerospace threat identification program mm-hmm. so that concept of threat and risk runs really deeply with them as it should um, right. regarding my, my father and and how he felt emotionally you know he felt that there were sort of three main constituents of people that he had to interact with. One, of course, was the Air Force, and, and say that, let's widen that to say the overall government apparatus and its various manifestations. Um, then you had mainstream scientists, and then you had UFO believers. And they all come at the phenomena from radically different points of view. And my father felt that he had to sort of keep peace to some degree with each of those entities and, and probably make them each a little bit angry. <laughs> uh, and then he was doing his job in, ba- in a very difficult three-dimensional balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, did it take an emotional toll on him? Absolutely. You know, you can, if you read some of his writings, you can see how frustrating things like the Robertson panel or the Condon committee were, where you have a scientist who just, has such a hard time understanding when people are, are purporting to do things in the name of science and they don't. Now he understood the, he didn't particularly 
like what the Air Force was doing, but he understood they had a job. But when you're going to cloak something in science, you should follow basic scientific protocols. And that was, I think, perhaps the most frustrating to him. Mm, that and, you makes know, and sense. The common, you know, and the common committee was basically the Air Force's trial balloon to to basically say and save face and, and, and close out Blue Book saying there was nothing there. But if you read the actual Condon report, the abstract or conclusion doesn't correspond to the cases that they relate in the report. And right. that, it's such a cardinal sin in science. And so my father would get furious with things like that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He just had a good temperament, uh, I, I, I think. And it's funny... <laughs> That you say that about the scientists, because the talk that you didn't get to see was the astronomer talk that I did, astronomers and UFOs, which, of course, had a lot to do with your father, because your father actually went out and questioned other astronomers about this topic and what he found was fascinating. But he often made that point that frustratingly, they there was this disconnect. They couldn't do good science or even follow scientific standards when it came to this topic. That's right. And, um, you know, he had a lot of private conversations with a lot of astronomers who in private related that, oh, yes, they think there's something very interesting going on here, or they had seen something that they couldn't describe, but they just were very reluctant to make any public statements about it. Mm-hmm. Now, did it have an effect on you all as children? So, for instance, did you get made fun of uh, by kids or, or while you were in school? <laughs> no, actually, uh, quite the opposite. Um, my father, you know, we, my generation of the family, we all grew up in Chicago when my father was at Northwestern, um, and he was well regarded in the community. And my friends all thought it was super cool um, that you know my dad was in Close Encounters. Um, mm-hmm. That's the thing that sort of really thrust him into the the public eye the most. Um, and yeah, no, nobody. I don't remember any negative. I mean, sometimes I'll be with people and, you know, somebody will bring up, you know, I, if I meet somebody, I don't often say, Hey, my dad was a UFO guy, you know, but sometimes somebody <laughs> else will say, Oh, do you know about Paul's dad? You might be interested in that. And, you know, you get the whole gamut of reactions like, Oh my God, I, I, I know of his work or, Oh, that's pretty cool. I really like that. Or UFOs really. So I've seen all reactions, but as a kid, um, it was really fun. We, we, we knew we had a very special father and, and people were, uh, I guess the people that d- didn't like it or took a dim view really didn't say much. Cause I don't remember really any negativity at all when I was a kid. That is really cool. That is really good to hear. Um, and then, so I guess as the show portrays your, your family life and, and you as children, do you feel that, uh, they did a pretty good job with that? Yeah, so, so far, uh, Joel has been born, and, and perhaps I'll be born as well. Um, <laughs> and, you know, th- th- yes, I mean, I think for the purposes of the show, I think they did a great job. Um, in real life, there's so much more that they could add, but you only have so much time to devote to the, the, the children's characters. You know, mm-hmm. um, my oldest brother, Scott, has a PhD from MIT. Um, my brother, Joel was building jet engines in the backyard and had this electronics wonder lab in his room wow. that Ross and I, my younger brother and I were always trying to get into. Um, and so, you know, there's stuff that if they decide to grow 
uh, Joel's character, who's kind of a, an amalgamation of all of us, they could have him doing, you know, really cool science experiments in the basement. And then my father sees something he's doing and extrapolates from that to explain something he's seen. So um, there's a lot of potential there, but you just have very little time to devote to the, to the characters of children, especially when the main character is on the road so much. Mm-hmm. Right. That is so cool, though. That's exciting uh, that what you guys did. And I'm sure your work was inspired by your father. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the my sister, um, who is a very accomplished artist and uh, a nurse midwife. And I, I was a French major. We're a little bit different than the other three children who are all engineers. Mm. So there's a, a really wide range of interests. But something that we all inherited from my father and my mother was a lot of intellectual curiosity about the things that interested us. Well, it's about time to take a break. So we'll take a break real quick and then we'll be back uh, to talk more about Project Blue Book. So we're very honored to have uh, Paul Hynek, the uh, son of the grandfather. I think a lot of people refer to him of ufology. And actually, that's what my talk, uh, Astronomers and UFOs, kind of starts is that, you know, Seth Shostak in particular of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence says, oh, if there's something to this, astronomers would be interested. Well, of course they're interested. And in fact, the whole modern, uh, investigation, civilian investigation of UFOs started with an astronomer. And that astronomer is Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who we'll talk more about right after this break. You're listening to Open Mind UFO Radio, and we're talking to uh, Paul Hynek. And during the break, because going into the break, I was talking about Seth Shostak, but uh, during the break, you said you actually did a lecture with him? Yeah, I did a, um, we did a joint keynote address at something called the Brink Institute Conference several years back. Wow. How was that? It was great. You know, I really like Seth. Um, and he reminds me of my father in that they're both very accomplished popularizers of science, mm-hmm. which is something my dad, my dad wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles for newspapers. And, you know, before he got known for UFOs, he was, he really had a passion to get people to understand how important it is to study math and science. Which is, I think Seth is genius that way. I, I am a big fan too. He's so fun to listen to and he makes such a compelling argument that there's tons of extraterrestrial civilizations out there. They have to be out there. But when it comes to UFOs, he's like, ah, not so much. Did you and uh, he talk about that topic at all? Uh, a, a little bit, but you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm not so different from him. I mean, he, yeah, and, and recently Neil deGrasse Tyson also said something similar to my brother when he was talking with him, that 
he believes in the, in the possibility of, of UFOs having come here or aliens having come here perhaps, but the, he just hasn't personally seen enough evidence to convince him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a proper scientific attitude. And, you know, and also my father, and I mentioned before that he wanted people to keep an open mind about the existence of the UFO phenomena, but he was also very cautious to not right away take the best available answer and make that your answer. So in this case, my father wasn't really a big fan of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, he felt there are some really challenges, some big challenges with that. It's, you have to go vast distances and perhaps tweak Einstein in the nose. And Mm -hmm. we have very sensitive instrumentation and, and, you know, we have a lot of videos now, especially that the Pentagon has released, but we don't have the corresponding reports of our instruments that can detect things that enter and exit our atmosphere from occurring. Plus, these objects seem to, de- to demonstrate a lot of comfort in our specific Earth gravity and atmosphere. So my father thought, look, this is a very interesting phenomenon. Something seems to be happening here, but it's not necessarily extraterrestrial. It could be interdimensional or some other, even perhaps more exotic answer. Mm-hmm. Right, which is one of the reasons I appreciate your father so much is is that discipline and uh, an example uh, of the scientific rigor and the discipline you need to bring to a topic like this that you can't jump to conclusions. I think what I like about him, though, is that he was willing, well, begrudgingly at first, I suppose, but he was willing to look at the evidence and take a hard look where it's been a little bit more difficult to get Seth to actually look at some of the more compelling uh, cases and information out there. Well, but on the other hand, give uh, give give Seth a break. He's got a huge universe to be looking at. That right? is true. <laughs> and I do agree that he is good at what he does. Uh, but sometimes I, I just feel he can be a little too dismissive. And for example, I know he hasn't looked at your dad's work regarding astronomers and, uh, you know, Peter Sturrock, who also wrote a book about astronomers. Right. And uh, I think right. he would find that fascinating. I think so, too. I think, you know, Seth is a very inquisitive person. And, you know, he's obviously positively inclined to the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And so if that life has come here and there's more evidence to present to him, I think he will be uh, very open to, to analyze it. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of kind of Seth uh, being a champion of science, and you brought up Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I'm also a huge fan of, uh, and he's been a little bit more open, at least lately, in some of his comments uh, uh, regarding the recent Pentagon program, which he felt was worthwhile, and it was a worthwhile uh, uh, to spend that money. Um, it doesn't seem, though, that we kind of have the champion, and perhaps we just don't have the person with the temperament or, or the right uh, access. We haven't had someone like your father to really champion this uh, topic uh, in in the field of science um, since your father. And, and do you think that's because of kind of the culture, uh, and do you think that's possible again? Oh, oh certainly it's possible. Um and, you know, I think one of the reasons that, that people tended to resonate with my father was they could identify the sort of journey he went on. He was a nuts and bolts astronomer and a professor um, and a rocket scientist who didn't really want to get swept into this, uh, in, into this world. 
but was asked to by the Air Force, and then, like you said, begrudgingly over time, uh, opened, well, I won't say opened his eyes, but uh, decided there really was something there, and then he became a champion, not for any particular theory, but for just having science being done. And so coming from that point of view, I think people understood that he had a fair amount of credibility to come to it. Uh, a lot of people that are, are well-known in UFO circles now don't have that scientific pedigree and, and indeed are often people who say that they've been abducted themselves. And I think that's a much harder thing for people to relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, it, may, it may well be true for all I know, but I know my father is also very careful about fessing up if he had seen a UFO. He, you know, he reported uh, perhaps twice he saw things he couldn't explain, but he's just one person, and that's just one data point. So he didn't attach a lot of significance to the things that he saw that he couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. And so I think he felt that he had to be very careful to safeguard his credibility to, to again, to, to work well with that Air Force and mainstream science with those groups. Um, but I think it's because he was a scientist and, and, and didn't look to get into it, didn't say that he had been contacted personally, I think it just made for a very effective recipe for somebody that, that people could look at and say, okay, well, if, if this professor has come to this conclusion, maybe there's something there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just hope, I hope there's a Heineck again one day. And I think there's potential, and this may be just wishful thinking on, on my part, uh, that your father becomes a cult hero uh, because of this show. And I think there's a few reasons. One being that uh, your father's history is kind of a hidden history. Not necessarily a lot of people know about it. Uh, Aiden Gillen plays such a likable and uh, I think a character that is someone you want, because I think viewers, especially even the skeptical, want to believe. But the way that uh, that in the show they walk people through these cases, it's very intelligent, and he and he's revealing. And then once people get interested and look into the real life uh, history of your father, they'll find this extremely rich history of many, many hundreds of cases that your father felt were unexplained. I think there's so much potential there for people to really, I hope, you know, jump onto this and it to become kind of a cultural phenomenon. Well, I, I think uh, that, that that's very kind of you to say. I think what my father would like is is not so much a focus on him but again, this sort of openness for science, even in the dark corners and the places that scare you or that you think aren't worthy of it are is often where some of the best discoveries are made. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a good part of his life, he worked on what, what I, I, I think we'd all agree is one of the most important questions ever to face mankind. And he tried to have a increasingly brighter flashlight to look in some very dark alleyways to try to, to glean some insights about it. Mm -hmm. So I guess, cause you are, you're a futurist, right? I mean, you think about uh, these things about the science and the culture. Do you think there is a potential for uh, this, for science to um, take on this, this issue again? And, and I mean, maybe you've in the circles you've been, you've been approached or you've seen uh, 
some increased in perhaps in in interest? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to tell. It's almost like a frog in the in the you know increasingly hot water. It, it's hard to tell day to day if there's increasing interest. And you know, for me, I'm also probably a, a poor judge of that because I, I'm involved in it since since mm-hmm. I was a child. UFO has been part of the fabric of my life. So I hear people tell me things. Um, they hear about the show or they hear about my dad or, or something like that. And so it's a, a, a very uh, different reality for me. Um, certainly I've seen with the buildup to the show, a, a lot of renewed interest in my father and in UFOs. And, you know, just being, like you said, a futurist and someone who's interested in science myself I hope people will take an increasingly, you know, a sustained and increasingly strong look at what I think is one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest enigmas we've ever found. And it, it is such a, I mean, there really is something for everybody um, in this phenomenon. It's very wide and vast and it just gets you to pose such interesting questions. And, you know, it doesn't matter so much to me what people think, as long as they take a look at some of the more compelling evidence, um, it, you know, it, it, it can't help but open your mind a little bit and at least make you think about the world and things in a different way. And I, I'd like to come back to something you asked about, about my father feeling stressed. My father never told me this, but I think I could, I could sort of see this in his eyes, that when something would happen on Earth and it's very stressful or, or aggravating, I think he had that sort of astronomer's voyage that he could do and just sort of teleport his brain to Venus and, and therefore minimize, and then looking at it from that scale, minimize whatever sort of frustrations were going on here on Earth because he, he had that ready facility to always look at things from a more universal point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, and I think what he really like, you know, there, I, I believe there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who prefer questions they can't answer, and there are those who prefer answers they can't question. Mm-hmm. And the people that, that are okay with questions they can't answer are more of the scientific bent and understand that, you know, where you, you know, are, is there something to the UFO phenomenon? I believe there is. Okay, where are they? And that's assuming that they are, they're creatures. Where are they from? I have no idea. Right. I really don't know. And I'm comfortable, as my father was, to say, I don't know. There right. is something very interesting happening, but and especially as a scientist, he was a little bit reluctant to say where they're from. People, many, many people automatically assume they're extraterrestrial, and that's sort of you know, codified in the language we use to describe these things. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think what he would really like is if this show, which is so well done, um, can help spur more people looking at um, questions they can't answer and keep questioning and not just shove the best answer they have into the, into the solution. I think that is a great uh, observation and and it's the perspective that we try to take and and definitely my listeners appreciate because it's more about uh, knowing what information do we have that can point us in one direction or another. And uh, very much like your father, we're not sure. We don't have enough evidence to definitively say 
one way or another at this point, except for that there's there's something interesting to look into. But as you mentioned, there are those people who are not comfortable with that. And so they need an answer and they move towards an answer. And yeah. I guess some of those people are convinced that your father was part of a cover-up. Well, you know, if you if you take it from a very strict point of view, yes, in, in the Air Force, there was a cover-up because there's there are redacted documents that have been released through the Freedom of Information Act efforts. So there, by definition, there's a cover-up. The question is, and my father was part and parcel of Project Blue Book. So yes, you could say he's part of a cover-up. Now, but what they're really saying, the sort of spirit of what they're saying is that there's a cover-up. There have been alien craft and bodies discovered and reverse engineered or dissected. Um, and we're waiting for the imminent disclosure of this by the government, right? There's a whole lot of people who feel that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know about, about the extent of that. My father wouldn't like to feel or wouldn't like people to feel that he was an active part of covering up information. Indeed, that was the exact opposite of his motivation to stay with Project Blue Book and the Air Force well after he realized that they were not looking for the truth. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, he, he would want people to, you know, he, he, he got uncomfortable with notions of cover up and things like that because it, partly because he's a scientist, those aren't things that you can really put in a Petri dish and analyze. And one of the big differences that he would point out is that he didn't study UFOs. He studied UFO reports. Uh, and that's what allowed him to sort of get a firm handle on, on the phenomena and then come up with the classification system. Um, so in terms of a cover-up, yeah, there is one. And I, I just personally don't know how deep it runs or if and when it will be disclosed. But on that note, you know, the show is going kind of in this direction of of Heine kind of getting uh, clues that there is is more information that's being yeah. hidden from him. And I do yeah. go into this in uh, my den of latest article recently that actually, uh, at least from my interviews, I, I don't know that he ever did feel that way. And I'd love to hear your input, but he would be somewhat justified because when they closed Project Blue Book, there was at least one memo where one of the generals had said, well, our best cases go somewhere else anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The um, 402nd Air Intelligence Squadron, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think starting in 1953 with the Robertson panel, there was another sort of parallel effort. Um, and, and, and that's not surprising because if, you know, with the, the estimate of the situation that was put out in 1948 saying that the Air Force believed that UFOs were likely of extraterrestrial origin, if that's the case, you should have more than one effort going on at the same time. This is a you know, matter of not only national security, but global security. And so Project Blue Book over the years became more and more a PR exercise to tamp down hysteria as opposed to a, a rigorous effort to, to, under, to scientifically understand and, from a technological point of view, harness technology that may have been discovered. Mm -hmm. Do you know if your father felt that there were some really large secrets being hidden from him? You know, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, well, certainly he knew that 
Um, just by, as we talked about, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Air Intelligence Squadron that was now investigating a bunch of cases, certainly there's information that's being held from him. But I don't know that he had a feeling as to how vast it was or what exactly they may have discovered. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and again, I think w- without evidence, I think, you know, he, he felt, you know, like Seth Shostak and, and others, he felt he was a science popularizer, first and foremost. He wanted people to understand how magical and important science was. And even if he did feel that there was juicy secrets being withheld from him, I don't know if he, if he would have said so publicly because I don't know what he would have thought he could gain from that. Um, and if that would might, if that might not erode his credibility and make people think he's some kind of conspiracy nut. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. You say that because that's kind of the feel I've gotten from the people that I've talked to that work with him, like Don Schmidt or even Mark yeah. O'Connell, this gentleman who wrote this recent biography. Sure. Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh-huh. you know, yeah, I think that was a, a constant concern. And so I don't remember him telling me, Hey, Bozo, you know, sometime <laughs> I have to take you to area 51 or something like that. Uh huh. And I guess my last question will be, because we're pretty much running out of time, as far as you can remember, what were some of his uh, favorite cases, the ones that I guess got him most excited? Sure, there were a lot of them. Um, Lonnie Zamora in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964. And I think one that he really liked, and and as my personal favorite, is the Father Gill case in Papua New Guinea. And mm. I think... 19- 71. I'm, I'm not sure if I have the date correct, but that was a fascinating case where um, you have an Anglican priest who's in Papua New Guinea who hears a large commotion outside, and there are a lot of people outside. And he looks and he sees a craft in the sky, and he was a fairly adept at trigonometry and he's performing some mental calculations to determine, uh, you know, how far and the craft is and how large it is, and they're all watching this craft, and and there were other reports in the country of sightings that suggested a possible trajectory. So there's corroboration of this, but maybe 500 witnesses on site and they see this craft and then this sort of hatch opens and they see humanoids, Father Gill waves and they wave back. Wow. And, and then soon thereafter, Father Gill goes inside for evening prayers um, for which he was roundly criticized, but, (laughs) <laughs> you know, one of the things he said was that was his, his oath was to do that and not his oath wasn't to do evening prayers unless he saw something interesting in the sky. <laughs> right. um, and so he came to our house and had dinner. He was attending an ecumenical conference in the U.S. And, you know, my father put a lot of a stead in the credibility of a witness. And this was about as credible witness as you could get. He wasn't you know, he wasn't looking, he wasn't eager to talk about this, but frankly, if you have seen a UFO and you come to our house for dinner, you're going to have to talk about it. That's the quid pro quo. <laughs> right. So he would, he would, my father would ask him about it and he would talk about it. He was obviously very intelligent. He was very comfortable in his skin. He wasn't looking to gain anything like book tours or anything like that. And he calmly related this incident and his various retellings have been consistent over time. And there were multiple witnesses. There were corroborations in other parts of the country. And so this is a case that he thought was particularly compelling. Wow. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a great pleasure. Pleasure is mine. So hopefully everybody will be tuning in in just a a week or two after the show airs uh, to the Project Blue Book show. And I guess you are you are you pretty excited about it? Are you happy with the way it's come out? Oh, I'm thrilled. I think it's going to be a really fun show and and get people to uh, look at the phenomena in an exciting and authentic way. Yeah, I agree. I'm super excited about it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much to Paul Hynek for joining us on the show. What a pleasure it was to have him. Uh, how how amazing is it to have this insight into history? I mean, for those of us who are UFO geeks, you know, this is like uh, exciting, exciting stuff for us. So thank you so much to Paul. I think that we'll hear more from him uh, as the season begins for Project Blue Book. It's going to air on the History Channel starting next Tuesday, January 8th. So a week from today, everybody will get to start to watch it. So I'm Uh, excited to hear people's feedback and don't get too excited. You know, I don't know if this happens to you when people tell you, Oh, this movie's wonderful. It's so cool. And then you go see it and you're like, eh, but then people tell you, ah, this movie wasn't that great. And you go see it and you're like, Hey, it's not too bad. I like it better than you said. So don't set yourself up. Just uh, watch it, see what you think. But, uh, you know, for the facts, for the details, go to the articles on the History Channel. And then for the uh, excitement of it all and to get kind of an idea, the feeling of what it was like, I guess, is more what the television show is about. So exciting stuff. I'm excited for it. And if you want to check out that interview I did with uh, Michael Malarkey, he plays uh, the Air Force guy that is kind of uh, Hynek's counter. You can go to the Open Minds TV YouTube channel to see that. Of course, if you're new to the podcast, then uh, the writer of the show, the guy who got the show uh, on the air, it was his concept, David O'Leary, we had on our podcast just a few weeks ago. So you can check that out. Very exciting stuff. Stay tuned for more on Project blue book right here on our podcast i'll also be writing about every episode for den of geek so keep an keep an eye out for that otherwise that's it for now we've got our next exciting year in review episode coming up so that is where martin myself and lee spiegel talk about all of the exciting stories of 2018 and it was a banner year perhaps One of, if not the most important year in ufology, I would say, at least in decades. So we'll tell you why uh, when you tune into the show next week. So that will be a lot of fun. But we've got a lot of really cool stuff in store for you. And then don't forget, every Thursday, most Thursdays, except for when there's a holiday, I'm doing my UFOs Seriously Live on YouTube as well. And... For all of this, you can go to my Patreon page. So just look for Alejandro Rojas on Patreon. I'm kind of it's kind of like become my one-stop shop for everything that I'm doing. And another thing that I posted up there that I'm going to be posting more is Amazon, kind of my my Amazon page. So I have a special page on Amazon that where I have products that I recommend. 
And essentially, these are UFO books, but they're also equipment because I'm doing all this AV stuff. So if you want to know what equipment I'm using, uh, you know, I've thoroughly researched all of this equipment. I've bought some that doesn't work out so great, but what I've listed here is the products that work really good. And I'm telling you, you can get some awesome products out there uh, when it comes to AV for low prices, but things that work great. So lights, microphones, stuff like this. So you could go to that page and see some of the cool stuff that I'm using. Otherwise, thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. Thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining me with the news at the beginning of the show. Uh, Go check out ufocongress.com for some of the cool stuff that we have on the store there. Oh, and I will be posting. People have been waiting for this coming up today or, yeah, I'm going to be posting this sometime today, is the debate between Jeremy Corbell and Stanton Friedman at the International UFO Congress in 2015 when Bob Lazar appeared uh, about Bob Lazar in Area 51. So uh, a lot of people have been asking for that. For some reason, we didn't get that up in our on-demand, but we're going to have that up in the on-demand. But I have made a special clip that's going to go to the UFO Congress YouTube page that everybody can watch for free, which is about half an hour long of Jeremy and Stanton just going at it, (laughs) debating about Bob Lazar. It's a lot of fun. So take a look for that too. All of these links I will put in the show notes on YouTube and on the openminds.tv website. So check it out. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, adios muchachos. (laughs) 